Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. The text to which I'd like to turn our attention again this evening is the 23rd Psalm. The final two verses of that beloved chapter, Lord willing, will finish tonight. What is perhaps the most well-known chapter in all of the Bible? It's not really any wonder why this is one of the most beloved passages of Scripture. It's relevant to every single moment of our lives. Right? What text can be equally appropriate on the day of the birth of a child or at a wedding and at a funeral? On our best days and on our worst days. And few texts can say so much with so few words and can speak so deeply and yet in a language that even a child can understand. The Lord is my shepherd. We've seen thus far that the Good Shepherd provides all that his flock needs. That he restores them. He turns them aright when they flip themselves over and be cast down with sin. How he guides them where they need to go, even if that path is in the deepest dark place. The valley of the shadow of death. And we've seen that his presence brings security and protection. And that even he can bring about the good of his sheep through the valleys of this life. So tonight we'll hear the closing two verses, which change the scene a little bit to a, a banquet, a table that has been laid out by the Good Shepherd. And we'll see how he showers his guests with abundant provision and honor and goodness and mercy, and how that treatment follows them all the days of their life. Let's read the 23rd Psalm together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Let's pray together. <coughs> Father in heaven, we ask that you would feed us, that you would pre prepare a table before us, that you would make our cups to overflow. And that your goodness and mercy will be manifested to us tonight by the sweet nearness of your spirit to us. That you would build us up as a body. That you would lift us up where we are weak. That you would refine us and shape us. That you would bring us more to the image of your Son. For your name's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's look at verse 5 together. And we'll notice four gifts that the Good Shepherd gives to David, that David is experiencing here in verse 5. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And so the first gift of the Good Shepherd to David is divine hospitality. Divine hospitality. The imagery in this verse is of a table, of a banquet. A feast is being prepared. The table is being set. The cups are being filled. And David has been invite the king of all the universe is making sure that no detail is left out of place and David lets us know that this banquet is 
not for the high and mighty over there. It's not for the sheep that have it all together. Sean has just finished a study of the life of David on Sunday mornings, and we know for sure that David was by no means a spotless sheep. In fact, in our more sober moments of reflection, we can all relate to David in one way or another. We've soiled ourselves in sin. We've done impulsive things. We've coveted what wasn't ours. We've lied to protect ourselves. We've pretended that we've not done anything wrong. And in those moments of reflection upon our sin, we can be tempted to believe that God has pushed us away from the table. That we're not worthy to come and eat with a holy God. That we've sold our birthright as a child of God for some porridge of this world. I have no doubt that David was tempted to think that way when he reflected upon his sin, particularly his sin with Bathsheba. But that's not what the good shepherd does. He doesn't toss us aside and push us away when we've gotten ourselves into trouble again. He doesn't demote us to the rank of second-level sheep. He doesn't kick us back to the kiddie table. No, he prepares a banquet table for us. And where does he prepare it? David says, before me. Nothing is out of reach for David. Everything he could possibly need is right at his fingertips. All of the blessings are his right at his hand. Rather than being cast aside, which he deserves, he deserves to be cast out. The shepherd has made him a guest of honor. David experiences, and we can experience, this overwhelming gift of hospitality, divine hospitality from our good shepherd. But David doesn't stop there. The second gift that he receives from the good shepherd is security. Security. David is secure in his experience of divine hospitality. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Perhaps you've read of the incredible celebrations that ancient kings would have when they were victorious over an enemy in battle. The triumphant king would parade his armies through the cities to show off his might and his grandeur. He then host a glorious feast in his palace, and sometimes he would even bring the defeated king and generals, disarmed of course, and have them in chains seated to watch the banquet unfold. He would humiliate the defeated parties. They would have to watch their victorious conqueror over there having this huge party celebrating their demise, and they were completely powerless to do anything about it. That's what David, I think, is saying here. His good shepherd has laid out a banquet table. He has stocked it with all measure of celebratory food and drink, and he's done it in the sight of his enemies who, no matter how hard they try, no matter how hard they want to, they are powerless to get their vengeance. David is secure from his enemies because of his faithful good shepherd. But lest we think that David is a mere bystander watching this whole banquet thing unfold from the sidelines, he continues on to the next gift. The third gift is the divine anointing. The divine anointing. David says of the good shepherd, you anoint my head with oil. Anointing, which is a ceremony of pouring some kind of oil usually infused with a pleasant-smelling fragrance, onto someone's head. In the Bible, the language of anointing is usually used to indicate two things, first of which was someone being set apart for a specific task. Kings like David were anointed when they were set apart by God for their reign over God's people. 
priests like Aaron were anointed when they were set apart for the service of God's people unto God. But anointing is also used in Scripture as a way of showing incredible honor. Anointing indicated a special honor being bestowed upon the one being anointed. Think of Mary in John 12, anointing even the feet of Jesus with expensive, exceedingly valuable ointment, the text says, and wiping his feet with her hair. She was showing incredible honor, demonstrating to all around how highly valued and honored Jesus was in her eyes. And so when David says that his good shepherd anoints his head with oil, he's saying he's no mere bystander at the banquet. He's a guest of honor. He's been given a very public, very precious privilege of being an honored guest at the banquet. He's not standing in the back with the servants. He's not bowing in chains like the defeated enemies. He's seated at the front of the room at the table for the honored guest. He's secure. He's treated like a man of stature. And he's a prized and beloved guest of the king. But a king, the king here doesn't stop with the oil. The fourth gift we see is the abundance of provision. The abundance of God's provision. David poetically tells us that he has overflowing bounty given to him when he says my cup overflows the symbol of an overflowing cup is in many cultures used to symbolize bountiful gifts or overflowing provision i saw on tv a while back a show where they were demonstrating in japan traditional sake customs and they would bring out special tableware and the guest of honor would be given a special sake glass and a wooden box into which that glass would be placed. And then the host would come and bring a pitcher of sake and would begin to fill that cup until it began to overflow and start to fill up the box in which the sake glass was placed. The guest of honor would be receiving a gift from the host, symbolizing that the host promises his abundant provision to the guest of honor and demonstrating how the guest of honor was worthy of such abundance, such overabundance and bountiful provision. David is saying something similar here. He's, his cup is not merely wet with a little wine. His cup is overflowing with divine provision. He's not merely getting by. He's not scraping in existence in God's flock. He's been given everything he could possibly need or want and given it in abundance. See, our good shepherd is not a stingy host. He doesn't hold back, reserving the costly and precious goods for those really good sheep over there. The overflowing provision is for all the sheep. He is a lavish host, graciously giving all things to those whom he has chosen to be his guests of honor. And so having looked at these four gifts, we would do well to ask ourselves, why is it that we can have these things? What is it that we can look at today and be confident in the knowledge that these gifts have been secured for us, for our Good Shepherd? And the answer is simply Jesus. We can look at each of these gifts and remember together how Jesus has secured each of them for his flock at great personal cost to himself. First, we can experience divine hospitality because Jesus has first experienced the separation that we deserve. 
can be brought into God's very own household and adopted as sons because Jesus was first treated like a treacherous traitor. The treacherous traitor we were by birth. We are all by birth and by choice sinners who have violated God's holy law. We have lied. We have coveted that which wasn't ours. We've been prideful. We've grumbled against God's good gifts to us. And because of those sins and many others, we deserve to be cast out, cut off from the flock, put away, unable to enter into God's presence forever. But God's plan for our reconciliation was to send his own son to bear the punishment that we deserve. He sent Jesus to die the death that we had earned and to taste of the separation that we had merited for ourselves. In fact, Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the agony of estrangement so that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus was the scapegoat that was cast out into the desert of death so that we might have union with our God again. Jesus was cut off from the table of fellowship so that we might taste of divine hospitality forever. Secondly, we can have security at the table of divine hospitality because Jesus was first vulnerable to his enemies at the table. I can only imagine this verse, right? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, running through Jesus' mind when he hosted the Last Supper and Judas was sitting there. Jesus had a table prepared for him, and it was prepared in the presence of his enemies. But his table was not yet a banquet table of victory. His table, the table that was prepared for him, was a prelude to his death. And because he was faithful in all of his mission, because he did everything that he needed to do to secure the salvation of his flock, because he willingly endured the cross for the sake of his people, Jesus has also said in Colossians 2.15, To have disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You see, Jesus has knocked the teeth out of the wolves that would do us any lasting harm. He's bound Satan and all of his minions and put them in chains. They're seated outside of the banquet table but can do nothing but watch. The victory has been won. We could even say tonight that the preaching of God's word and the presentation of the Lord's table again is a little picture of God's final banquet table, both of which are proclaiming to the principalities and powers of this age that they have been defeated. They are in chains. They are bound, unable to do anything of eternal harm to those who have been invited as the guests of honor at the table of our victorious Good Shepherd. Third, we can experience the anointing of honor because Jesus has first experienced the anointing of shame. We can be set apart by divine anointing unto a service of honor and unto a status of honored guests at God's feast. And we can do that because Jesus was first anointed himself. But his anointing was to be the substitute for his sinful people. And rather than tasting of the honor that he had earned for his virtue, he instead was identified with the shame of his sinful people. Rather than being clothed in regal robes and royal jewels, he was stripped naked and nailed to a cross. Rather than being anointed with blessings and glorious titles, he was spat upon and cursed 
Cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree. And because he tasted the shame of sin and he bore the curse of the cross, his people are able to come as honored guests to the table of the king. God no longer sees us as shameful and dirty sheep. He sees us as robed in the pure vestments of Christ's righteousness. We're wrapped in the glowing white linens of Christ's faithfulness. And because of that, we're treated as royal guests of honor. Indeed, we're treated as sons of the king himself because that's what we are in Christ. We're given the status of divine family members brought into the household of God, not as servants of the divine kingdom, but as sons and daughters of the almighty God himself. And how is this given to us? By an anointing, an anointing of the precious oil of the Holy Spirit himself. God doesn't just wave his wand and make us family. He pours out his very own spirit into us. The spirit which the New Testament calls the spirit of adoption. He seals us. He marks us out. He brings us into the family of God. He guides us into holiness. He bestows upon us the honor of being made into the image of the Son himself. The Good Shepherd anoints our heads with oil, the oil of honor, the oil of adoption, the oil of the Holy Spirit himself. Fourth, we can have a cup overflowing with divine abundance because Jesus first had a cup. But Jesus' cup wasn't overflowing with wine. It was a cup filled with his own blood. Jesus drank a cup, but it wasn't a cup of victorious celebration. It was a sober cup of divine judgment. Several verses in the Bible speak of God's wrath for sin in terms of a cup. Jeremiah 25, 15. Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, 17. Oh, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk the dredge down to the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is the cup that we had earned for ourselves. The cup overflowing, not with divine abundance, but with divine wrath and judgment for our sins. But praise be to God that when faced with the prospect of drinking the full weight of divine wrath for his people's sins, Jesus' response was what? My Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Only because Jesus has drunk the cup of God's wrath for sin can we taste the cup of divine abundance. Jesus tasted the cup of famine so that we might taste the cup of feasting. Because of Christ's work, we can know that we've been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places. We've been promised everything needful for us to live a life of honor to God. And we've been given everything that we need for a life of joy and satisfaction because of the blessings that God has secured for us. Our joy is not contingent upon fleeting earthly possessions or the favor of men or status in this world or vain glory or anything else. Our joy, our overflowing cup of satisfaction is based upon the sure foundation of God's promised benevolent disposition towards us. Which is the perfect transition to the next verse. Where we see the shepherd's certain care. The good shepherd's certain care for his flock. Verse 6, David writes, surely, certainly, absolutely. 
Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, we might be tempted to hear of God's banquet table and to see some of the blessings that we have and feel okay about today. We're good now. I got it under control. Everything's okay. But what, what about tomorrow? You see, sheep like us are anxious when we cannot see what's there. We can't know what's going to happen about tomorrow. We start to doubt. We start to worry. Well, what if I don't get enough hours at work and I can't pay the bills? What if I don't get the job or get into the college I want? What if this relationship falls through? What if they don't like me anymore? What if God doesn't feel this way about me tomorrow? Well, David speaks to us in this verse to remind us that God's pastoral disposition towards his flock does not change. Let's walk through this verse. What is it that's promised? Goodness and mercy. God's goodness is his benevolent disposition towards his people. Right? It's, his, it's his manifesting his abundant care and his promises to give them everything that he has vowed to give them. And his mercy, or his covenant love, it might say, his loving kindness. It's God's covenantal commitment to bless his people with his goodness. David is expressing deep confidence in the covenantal loyalty and trustworthiness of God himself towards him. And by extension towards us. David doesn't need to fear that God will be good to him today but not tomorrow. Or that God will keep his promises today but will be somehow unfaithful tomorrow. God is the eternal, unchanging, all-holy bridegroom who has bound himself to his bride with an eternal vow of faithfulness and is vowed by his very own character, which cannot be violated. There is nothing that could break down his faithfulness to his people, and there's nothing in God that would even consider such unfaithfulness. Consider some of the mercies that are promised to us in Scripture who are a part of God's flock. We have the mercy of of union with Christ himself. The mercy of Christ calling us to himself. The mercy of new birth or regeneration. The mercy of justification whereby we are declared righteous in the eyes of God Almighty himself. The mercy of pardon for sins. Sins past, sins present, and sins future. Whereby the liability for our sins guilt is taken away because of Christ's work on the cross. We have the mercy of adoption, whereby we're brought from being orphaned by sin and estranged from God into God's very own household. The mercy of satisfaction, whereby Christ's perfect obedience to the law is credited to our account, fulfilling the law's demands against us. We have the mercy of the Holy Spirit, who seals us for the promised day of redemption. We have the mercy of sanctification, whereby God promises to guide us into holiness and to never let sin have dominion over us. The mercy of eternal security, whereby we're promised that God will never lose one of the sheep of his flock, but he will hold them tight for all of eternity. And the mercy of glorification, whereby we're promised an everlasting, perfected body and a continued Blessed existence with him in heaven for all of eternity. 
These are just some of the evidences of God's goodness and mercy that are promised to us in Scripture. But let's continue. What does David say that the goodness and mercy is going to do? He says they're going to follow him. His goodness and mercy aren't just available when he's been good and he's gone to temple and done what he needs to do for the day. They're not just available in Jerusalem. Goodness and mercy aren't just available at church. They're not just available when things are going well. The goodness and mercy will hound him, will track him down. It won't leave him alone. That's what we can know about our good shepherd. He's not content merely to offer you access to goodness and mercy. His mercy seeks you out. When we've run off the rails into sin and shame again, His goodness and mercy seek us out. He will come to get us. He'll bring us back home. He will work in our hearts to convict us of our sins by His Word and remind us of His promises in Scripture and woo us back to Him with merciful gentleness. And how long is this goodness and mercy going to follow me? All the days of my life. I don't have to worry about goodness and mercy being a limited time introductory offer. God's graciousness and faithfulness are not the beginning trial period after which we are on our own. We need just as much goodness and mercy 50 years after following Christ as we did the day of our baptism. And we're promised that in this text. We're not going to outgrow or outrun God's goodness and mercy. And notice that he doesn't merely say, goodness and mercy will follow me all of my life. As if, generally speaking, your life will tend towards displaying an overall disposition of God's goodness and mercy. As if God will have some moments of goodness and mercy and other moments of harshness and wrath. But in the end, the scales will slightly tip towards mercy. That's not what he's saying. The text says, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Each day, mercy and goodness is shown to you. God tells us in His Word, His mercy is new every morning. It's not as if you exhaust God's mercy one day, and that's all you get. It's like your data plan on your cell phone. I'm sorry, you've used up all your data for the month. Try back again at the first of the month. I'm sorry, you've run out of mercy for August. You'll have to wait till September to get more mercy. That's not how it works. God is overflowing with mercy. He brings it faithfully to you every morning. And by now you're saying, well, how, are you sure? Are you, is it really possible that this could be true? How do we know this is the case? Well, David is positive in his understanding. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Assuredly, certainly, without a doubt, we don't have to wonder. You can take it to the bank. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Consider who has covenanted himself to this flock. It's the good shepherd himself. He is all-powerful, so nothing can prevent him from sharing his goodness and mercy to us. He's all-knowing, so nothing's going to surprise him and take him off guard that he wasn't planning for. He's unchanging. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's not going to love you today and then dump you tomorrow as if he was a fickle man like us. And he's demonstrated the depth of his loving kindness to you by sending his own son to die in your place. And so what more could be needed to demonstrate the good shepherd's dedication to upholding his promises of goodness and mercy to you? Surely, certainly, 
Without a doubt, goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And in light of that certainty, David closes with, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This banquet feast of superabundance, this divine anointing of blessing and honor, this shower of goodness and mercy is not just a one-time thing. God has promised us a seat at the banquet table so that we can be showered with divine love and satisfaction for all of eternity. Nothing can remove our name from the guest list of this banquet. Nothing's going to revoke our permission to attend. Nothing's going to rescind our reservation. God's not going to have a spot marked out for you today, and then you do something and he knocks the placard away. Sorry, you lost your chance. He doesn't make mistakes when he writes out his banquet guest list. I remember when I was younger, singing a children's song that repeated the line over and over again, he invites me to his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. I don't know if you remember that song. You'd sing that same line over and over. He invites me to his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. And I thought the repetition was a little annoying at the time. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I see that I need to hear that again and again. And the song has done its work because it came to my mind thinking about this. God has invited me to his banqueting table. I need to hear that over and over again. And that's what this text is reminding us. God invites us to himself to feast in security. And to have his love as our banner, our proof of his goodness and mercy towards us. Have you tasted of that mercy? Do you know of that love? If not, then God's invitation to his banquet stands for you tonight. Repent and believe in this Jesus that's proclaimed from scriptures. Do not ignore such a gracious host. Know that your sins can be forgiven and you can be made a guest of honor. If you would become and believe. And also know that if you reject his invitation. Then you will be one of his enemies that he will defeat. And you will have to watch his banquet from afar. From the punishment in hell itself. Unable to join. And eternally regretting that you rejected such an offer of goodness and mercy. But for us believers. It's hard to think of a more fitting text that could lead us straight into the Lord's Supper tonight. Our Good Shepherd has indeed prepared a table before us. A beautiful reminder of His goodness and mercy that follow us all the days of our lives. This table is prepared for any and all that are part of God's flock. Those that have been united to Christ by faith and are in good fellowship with a Bible-believing church. Those kinds of believers are marked out in Acts 2 by being devoted to apostolic teaching and fellowship with the saints and the breaking of bread and prayer. And if those marks are in your life, then we invite you to come. But if you're not yet united to Christ by faith, then I encourage you to do that first. To follow him in repentance and baptism and then join us at the table. Tonight, as our table servants bring the plates around to you, you'll notice we're doing it in a little different way. Um, the plates will be brought to you, and the cups inside are stacked in stacks of two. The lower cup has a piece of bread in it, and then another cup containing the juice is stacked inside. So all you will need to do is reach in and grab your one stack of two cups, and it has both elements in there together. 
this method will hopefully be uh, sanitary, a sanitary solution for all of us. And so as the servants come by, just grab a single stack of two cups. As the plates are coming around, I'd encourage you to pull out your bulletin and think about the words of the second verse of our coming closing hymn. The words that say, Christ, remind us of your passion, of your precious life outpoured, of the love which none can fathom, and our victory evermore. I'll pray and then our table service can come. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would feed us, even now, through this visible picture of the gospel itself, how Christ's blood and body was shed and broken for his people. Nourish us, Lord. Speak through your word. May I this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.